0: I'll give you just a second, but John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. One dark night, a, pic, a, a night I picture in the new moon, one of these inky black nights, Nicodemus, a righteous man, a Jew, a Pharisee, came to Jesus to ask and to seek and to knock, saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus would reply, you must be born again. Essentially, he's saying, if you want your questions answered, if you want to know me, who sent me and what I'm about, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's confused. But he continues to engage, trying to see with his physical eyes, trying to understand with his brain and not his spirit. But then Jesus lays it all out. Perhaps the most well-known Christian verse of all time, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's this verse that we have as our, the, the crux of our whole faith. And Nicodemus is the one who received that, that teaching personally. But then Jesus, I think in some gentle rebuke, tells Nicodemus that it's those who are evil that operate in the darkness. And that one who is true operates in the light. And again, Nicodemus being there at night. And within this exchange in chapter 3 of the book of John, Jesus, in his masterful way, uses this analogy of wind to describe the Spirit, more specifically, those of us who are born of the Spirit. And this is something I kind of want to explore this morning. What is it to be like the wind, to be with the wind, to be born of the spirit. So Jesus essentially tells Nicodemus he can't conceive or understand the workings of God's Spirit naturally. It's not observable in a physical way. And up to this point, despite its spiritual connotation, despite him saying, we know that you're from God, Nicodemus is trying to understand Jesus physically, which means he's in the dark, both literally and figuratively. And just looking at Nicodemus, we can see a couple things right away. The first thing he says is, we, we know that you are from God. And unless he's one of these odd people that speak of themselves in the third person, right, we, he's there as a representative, and, and most likely a representative of a group of religious leaders. And there's many instances in Scripture where we see the Jews the Pharisees, the religious authorities, believing in Jesus but fearfully and secretly. And there's a verse is to me one of the most tragic and the most poignant of these verses in John 12, verses 42 and 43. Jesus, uh, the Scripture says, not this isn't Jesus speaking, but it says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Speaking of Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Glory from man, that most fickle, most flawed, and easily tarnished glory, fading, and even treacherous, flattering glory, but that's so often what we love and crave. And we look at the proliferation of social media. That's what it's all based on, right? The glory of man. And it's so fast and it's so fleeting. I just recently posted something on on Instagram recently. It's pretty much the only platform that I use. And, you know, it, it got a lot of attention. One of the most that I've ever had. And that went on for about two days and now it's on to the next big thing, right? And now there's this pressure. What else can you do? What else can you? And we see people pushing, pushing the limits to where people are taking selfies and killing themselves, falling off of cliffs because they're looking for the glory of man. That's so so, so tenuous of glories. And I think that's why Nicodemus, Nicodemus on this dark night I picture him, his cloak wrapped tight, his hood around his face, coming to Jesus. Not his usual fine robes with the long tassels or the phylacteries that they wore as symbols of their authority, but hidden at night. But to Nicodemus' credit, he came. He came. Which must have taken incredible courage, even in this way, even at night, to risk it all to put everything on the line. And I wonder, like we talked about, as we, if he is this representative that it seems to be, was there a drawing of straws? Did he just get the small, you know, the short straw? Was there a roll of the dice, the casting of the lot? Did the lot just fall to him? Did his other, you know, colleagues, did they vote him to take this role? Please go, you know, you go. And, or did he step boldly and say, I'll go. I'll go talk to Jesus. And like I said, that must have even in this way at night and hidden and secret to put everything on the line. But just a little vignette of him, I see not only is he coming in this we, not only is he coming for himself, but for others as well. And this is a great sign of where Nicodemus is in his heart. Whenever we're willing to risk something for others, this pleases our Lord. And of course, the obvious thing, he came to where Jesus was. Other Pharisees had invited Jesus to their house to be on their turf. But Nicodemus goes to where Jesus is. And again, I think that speaks of respect and humility and a willingness to go to Jesus where he is. And both of those things, working for others, and going to Christ where he is, that's a good sign in our heart. That shows a sign that we're ready to receive what Jesus has to say. And then we see this great, even if incomplete, declaration. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. So first, right, right off, we see he refers to Jesus as Rabbi. Rabbi. That is a great level of respect for this religious leader to refer to Jesus in that way. It demonstrates deference and humility on his part. And again, that's always the sign of someone who is truly seeking. And he says, we know. I want to key in on that word a little bit more, just we know. And there's this idea in Scripture of knowing versus believing. The things Nicodemus knew had been observed. It was reasonable and logical to know that Jesus was different, that he was righteous and godly, and he was doing things that no one else could do, especially things the lauded religious leaders of this time could not do. It did not take faith to tell Jesus was remarkable. That was something that could be observed naturally. And even the Jews that, that dismissed Jesus and condemn Jesus, they knew he was remarkable too. At the very end, when he was hanging on the cross, they would say, he saved others, let him save himself. They knew he had saved others. They knew the things he was doing were different, remarkable, and miraculous. They knew it here in their mind. But the how and the why takes faith. And to have true saving faith, to, tr- to truly see you must be born again. You know, we know many things, most of which has no impact whatsoever on our life. We know it's good to eat healthy and to exercise, yet the fast food industry thrives. (laughs) Knowing what's right does not keep us from doing what is wrong in any sense at all. But in terms of being born again, knowing is not enough. Like Nicodemus, it might be a good start but it's in believing that we come alive in him. I have this idea and you know, this phrase I wrote, belief is knowledge being breathed into action, which is what we refer to as faith. And that's kind of contradictory to what the world sees as faith, I think. Faith, I think the world sees as kind of a nebulous sort of feeling a naive sort of hope in something that's impossible. But that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is active. Do you agree with that? Biblical faith is active. It's not just an idea. In James 1.22, he says, "'Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves.'" And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I think that's true in every area of our life, not just spiritually. Will our bosses be satisfied if we hear and do not do? If they ask us to do something, we say, yeah, I hear you. Then we go off and do something entirely different. That won't fly. Will the police be satisfied if we hear and don't do? Will our teachers, will the IRS Be satisfied if we hear and don't do? I don't think so. So in every area of our life, we must do and not hear only. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we're often um, kind of there's kind of a disconnect. We seem to think that believing is enough, as if it were just an idea or a philosophy. And this is not just an idea; it is literally life or death. Knowing is not enough. Life is not in knowing, or in this case, hearing, but in doing, and in this case, believing. And this goes all the way back to our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, where knowing actually brought a curse and sin and death into the world, when they they failed to do what God had commanded. And there is, so we're talking about knowing versus believing, and I know this is, A little bit convoluted, but when we, there's a type of biblical knowing that goes beyond a factual, um, physical type of knowledge, and I want to make that distinction. There's a type of knowing in the Bible that even speaks of the intimacy between a man and his wife, Uh, that fellowship, that intimate. Um, experiential relationship that results in a personal knowing that transcends facts or equations. But this types, that type of knowing, that type of knowledge, only comes through faith. And I think one could even say that we can't know God, we can't know ourselves, we can't know Jesus, our spouses, or even our purpose on this planet without being enlightened through faith. And that comes from acting on the belief in God's word and the prompting of his spirit or from uh, hoisting our sails and catching the wind, if you will. And I believe that Nicodemus caught that wind eventually where he came from the darkness to the light. Because this isn't the only time that we see Nicodemus in scripture. I'm sure some of you may be familiar. Later on, Nicodemus will appear as well. The next time we see Nicodemus after this encounter with Jesus in John 3 is in John 7, 50 and 51, where he stands up in the midst of the council and he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And that took a lot of guts. They shout him down. They say, you don't know what you're talking about here. And and he Quiets down for that, but the the courage, the amount of of faith that that took for him at this point to stand up and to defend Christ in the midst of that council. Uh, in the midst of that council, and then finally, we see this other progression where we see him boldly affiliating himself with Christ in John nineteen. He comes with Joseph of. Arimathea, a good scripture requires, uh, defines him as a good and righteous man, a respected man, a rich man, a disciple of Jesus who were told took courage and asked Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus comes alongside him. And we see these two men acting on the wind that's blowing in their lives, where they come Openly. Caring for Jesus' tortured body when all the others had forsaken him. And by doing this, he was doing what is normally a familial responsibility. He was taking the role of a family member. He was identifying himself with Jesus and saying, I'm of the Lord's family. I'm going to take care of him. This was a righteous man. He's standing up openly and doing again what no one else would do. He paid thousands of dollars of his own money on the best spices and ointments to come and minister to Jesus' body. And I'm sure weeping over the body of the Lord, the costly oils and spices mixed with tears, and I imagine the regret and the sorrow that he felt at that time. And I imagine the conversation between Joseph and Nicodemus as they recounted the things they had seen and the words Jesus had spoke you know perhaps nicodemus recounted this very night where he had visited jesus perhaps joseph was one of the rulers whom nicodemus was representing that night and it's interesting to speculate those things but now he didn't care what others thought he didn't care about his reputation or his position And there was no going back from this point. People were gonna see him differently after this. After taking Jesus' body and spending his own money and identifying himself with him, this was a life-changing step that Nicodemus was taking. He acted openly, boldly, righteously. And I'm sure it felt too late. But it wasn't. I'm sure it felt too late because he probably regretted, why didn't I do more when Jesus was alive? Why didn't I spend more time with him? Why didn't I do this? And I'm sure there was those doubts and those regrets and that sorrow associated with seeing this man whom he knew was a righteous and godly man at the very least laying there dead and tortured and thinking, what, I could have done something to prevent this. But again, it wasn't too late and it never is. This is something that God has really shown me a lot in my life, that it is always time to act in the name of and for the glory of Christ. And for every failure of fear, for every doubt, God will give you 10 times the opportunity to stand for him. It's never too late. All those times where you've maybe had that impulse to witness to somebody, and you didn't and you felt, man, I really blew it that time. All those times that maybe you took credit for something God did in your life. God will give you another opportunity. All you have to do is want it and he'll give you infinite possibilities. And then the more you begin to say yes, even more upon that. God is a God of multiplication. And if you just have The inkling, I guess what I'm trying to say, is never, you've never messed up to a point where God's done with you if your heart is in the right place. So look forward. Don't look back at your failures. Look forward to what Jesus wants to do in your life now. So I want to move on from Nicodemus. He is a great example. I hope that he is in heaven. We don't know for a fact if he was saved, but we do know that Joseph of Arimathea is defined in scripture as a disciple of Christ, but not openly for fear of the Jews. But now he's open, and now Nicodemus is with him, affiliating himself with him. It's not a huge step to say that he is, and I hope he is, and I hope that God used him greatly in the early church. We just don't know. So moving on from him, back to this passage, the word Jesus uses in this passage in John for wind and spirit are the same word in Greek. They can be used interchangeably. The word wind and the word spirit. When God gave Adam life, we're told God breathed into him. When Jesus imparted the first measure of his spirit to the apostles, we're also told he breathed on them. And when the Spirit came in its fullness at Pentecost, we're told it had the sound of a rushing wind. So breath, air, wind, spirit, they all have this association together. And Jesus is using, again, this analogy to describe the actions, the people of God, those who are filled with his Spirit. And the first thing that came to my mind as I read that, there's no greater force in nature than the wind. Who in here lives in Penrose? Anybody from Penrose, do <laughs> you know about wind? Pueblo West, we know, know about wind out there. There's wind here too. But hurricanes, tornadoes, unfathomable devastation and destruction we see from these forces of nature. This incredible power. The wind can shape rock and change the face of the earth. It can turn a docile sea into waves as high as mountains. But wind, being essentially fast-moving air, is invisible and mysterious. Wind is defined by unpredictability. But that's only a factor of our lack of understanding and perception. The wind knows exactly where it's going and what it's doing. It does exactly as intended. So if we think that it's unpredictable, it's because we just don't perceive what God is doing in that. And I think that's part of that characterization of God's Spirit in this teaching. Everything God does is in perfect order. If it doesn't seem that way, again, it is due to a flaw in our perception, not due to a flaw or some kind of randomness in God's plan. I love how Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes, not how we wish it or when we wish it. How hard or how soft. Or from what direction, from the north or from the west, but again as it wishes, and we are utterly powerless against it. There's nothing worse than fighting the wind, nothing so demoralizing, nothing that saps your energy or will like an unrelenting, biting wind that tears through your very bones. In search and rescue, we have this, uh, there's this term that talks about convective heat loss. And that's just a fancy way of saying the wind sucking the heat out of your body. And in certain situations, getting out of the wind can literally mean the difference between life and death, between surviving and being rescued or dying. The wind can be deadly. But on the other hand, there's nothing more refreshing on a hot, stifling day than a nice, cool breeze. You know, my wife and I have had the, the privilege of being able to go to some tropical locations. My sister just moved to Florida and we were down there recently where it's unbearably hot. We went there in August. But if you're down by the beach, there's those nice soft breezes and it makes it wonderful. It's a great place to be. But if you go inland where that breeze is not so prevalent, it's pretty miserable. <laughs> so it can be this great refreshing presence too. But neither of these things do we have any control over. Only the choice, the the only choice we can make is whether to go with the wind or against the wind. Are there any cyclists in the crowd? Any mountain bikers, road bikers? I'm a cyclist too. I like to mountain bike. But wind is one of the cyclists' most deadly enemies I mean, I would rather climb mountains, I would rather descend the most treacherous, rock-strewn, downhill path than I would to ride against the wind for a prolonged amount of time. When I'm riding against the wind, I get really, you know, you try to get small and aerodynamic and, and every pedal's kind of a struggle. You get tired, you get discouraged, tempted to quit. I feel incompetent or out of shape. 100 pounds heavier, weaker and even older than I am? You're supposed to say, no, no. (laughs) But when I'm riding with the wind, when you turn around and go with the wind, man, I'm fast, I'm up out of the saddle. I feel capable and skillful, effortless. I feel lighter and stronger and younger than I am. So really, I think, how we're choosing to live our lives can be defined by these two categories. Are we living against the wind, like Bob Seeger? <laughs> Come on. Or are we living with the wind? There's some young people in here like, who is that? Look it up. Are we living according to God's will or our own? Are we being directed where he wishes Or are we pedaling like crazy, wearing ourselves out, trying to get somewhere else? Many of us spent a lot of years being tossed about by the wind before coming to Christ. And perhaps some of you are in that place today. Now, let's clarify, too. Riding with the wind does not mean there won't be trials or challenges or obstacles, or that your life will be without hardship. Jesus Christ taught us, in this life, you will have tribulation. You will have it, but take heart, I have overcome the world, and that's the wind at your back. That's the wind at your back, that overcoming that he promised. Second Samuel 22, 29, and 31, David says, this is King David speaking. He says, "'For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness.'" For by you, I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. And that's the wind at David's back, saying, you can get me through these really hard things. Running against a troop, he's talking about warfare and battle and these obstacles in his life of leaping over this wall. And in Isaiah thirty thirty one, this is a great verse, I'm sure some of you know this one. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. And what is more masterful at being one with the wind than an eagle? And God's created these incredible creatures to be able to utilize the wind and use the wind, wind that would blow us, you know, off the mountain but this eagle can soar and use that wind and be a part of it in a way that it's designed to, and I think that's what God intends for us too. See, it's God's spirit that will enliven us to empower us through the trials of life to the destination that he intends and that he wishes, which is always best. God's not directing you somewhere that's bad for you, and that's that fighting against the And When we do that, it just wears us out, and it discourages us, just like the bicycle example. But Jesus says in John 3 that we, those who are born of the Spirit, have this wind-like quality. So let's just go uh, through a few things, because you know I love that Jesus uses so much of, of his creation to demonstrate these spiritual truths. And I think we can really break these things down and and really get to the depth of what he means by that. And there's, there's a lot of different things, but I, you know, I start out like we were talking about. Wind is powerful. But the greatest power one can exert is over yourself, over your emotions, your reactions to things, over your lusts and the temptations of the world. Godly self-control and temperance should define a spirit-filled believer. That is true Power and that gets the world's attention too. Power, in God's eyes, is not who has the most money or who has the coolest car or who has the most likes or who has the most whatever. Power is that thing of being able to persevere in a difficult circumstance and keep a smile on your face and faith in your heart when everything seems to be going crazy. Wind is invisible. We should do things and serve God and others in a way that is as invisible to others as possible, that, but that brings full and obvious glory to God, not to ourselves. When Jesus taught about prayer and fasting and giving, he taught to act and to do secretly so that God sees and rewards, right? He says, these other people are doing these things to be seen, You do these things in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Wind is loud. We hear the effects of it. Oftentimes in our own church, if the wind's blowing really heavily, we'll hear the leaves and the twigs blowing across the roof, right? We can hear the sound of it. It makes sound. Even a slight breeze you can hear in the trees. They're not silent. Wind is not silent. And we should be those who speak of God who sing to God, who witness about and praise God to others. And just as God directs and adjusts the wind to the proper season and circumstance, so should we be directed. You'd be really, really loud with this person over here and maybe you're more of a gentle breeze with this person over here and God's spirit will give you that kind of discretion. There's some Christians that are very, very loud all the time. (laughs) And that, you know... I don't I don't judge any of that but I'm just saying we should be speaking and witnessing and using the breath that God's given us for his glory. And it often takes love and patience and his leading to do this right especially in our combative culture. Wind is unpredictable. Sometimes the Christian life seems nonsensical, inexplicable, illogical or even foolish. And Jesus' life on earth often had this character. It seems he was always kind of keeping the apostles guessing. He would go to different cities and travel here and go here. And he would act and react totally contrary to their expectations. Healing in a variety of often bizarre and random ways. But it all had its perfect timing. Timing. And a definite plan. Nothing Jesus did was random or foolish. It just seemed that way from the outside looking in, but God had his perfect plan working. As God directs us in a supernatural way, it may not make sense to your extended family, your co-workers, your friends, or even your fellow believers. And I just I read this article this morning, it was really interesting, that said that those who attend church have all these health benefits. They live longer, and there was all this stuff. And the, this researcher, the scientists, made the statement that attending church regularly is more effective than Lipitor. Does anybody ever <laughs> take Lipitor? Like, literally. It actually has a better impact on your blood pressure, on your overall health. You have a longer life. But the world would say, what are you wasting your time at church on Sunday mornings? You could be out doing something Cool. You know, you could be doing something fun. Why are you spending all this time in church? It looks foolish, but it has its fruition in something good. Luke 7.35, a really cool little, almost enigmatic verse that Jesus says. He says, wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus is saying that the fruit, or the children, of being led and directed by God And not trying to fit Jesus into your thing will justify the trust you've placed in him and in letting him direct you. You know, speaking of these kind of things that they have their fruition later, I mean, I even heard of somebody that God called to donate their liver to a distant relative. Has anybody heard of anybody like that? And you think, what in the world? What is that? but God's doing a work and we'll see the work when we look back. And so many of us have those instances in our life where God is doing something and it seems confusing or odd to somebody else or even to yourself, but you're obedient and you do it and you go along, you let that wind blow in a certain direction and then you look back and you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you now for the children, for the fruit of that decision that you gave me faith to accept. In John 13, 7, he says, again, Jesus speaking, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And I think that's a big part of the Christian life also. Isaiah, this is, I think it's in 25, but he says, on that day, we'll basically say this day, This is God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And it's this idea of like, that's the fruition of all of our life now when God comes back to save us. But even in this life before that time, um, we can look back and see the work that God's been doing in our life. Now, in, on that line of that unpredictability, that's not to say that we should be flaky, or use some flimsy, trumped-up excuse to break our word, but simply that the, but like the wind, some things God may ask us to do will not make sense at the time, but they will have their fruition. Wind is destructive. We talked about that too. Things in our life that get in the way of our walk with him need to be destroyed with extreme prejudice. Like a tornado, we should allow God's spirit to tear through our hearts and blow out anything that is restricting his flow. There's a time when that wind should be destructive in our life, not in others' lives. There's times when God may have you speak to somebody else or to counsel someone else, But this is for us, to allow God's wind to clean us out in that destructive kind of way so that new growth can occur. And finally, wind is refreshing. We as spirit-filled believers should be a refreshing breeze to those in this world laboring under the withering heat of this life. Through encouragement, through serving and helping, Maybe through just listening, but in whatever way, to be willing to sacrifice of ourselves to let God blow through us for the benefit of others. I think we could all agree with that. That's, all the, kind that, that's the kind of people that we want around us, those refreshing people. Now, one person's refreshing breeze may feel like a tornado. They may be very sensitive to that kind of thing. And I, and I can understand that. You know, the Apostle Paul would say at one point, to one, we are the aroma of life. And to, uh, to the other, we're the aroma of death. And it's the same aroma, but to one person, it smells horrible. And to the other person, it smells like life. And I, I have to do this again. I didn't mean to do this the first service, but my wife recently cooked some liver. In our house and I have some extremely bad childhood memories associated with liver and that smell and she's over there like oh this is so healthy and it's this thing and I I about lost it that was the worst I mean I hadn't smelled that in years and I told her I can't ever smell that again I can't ever smell that in this house or anywhere else ever again but she loved it, you know, and, and, and so all I'm saying by that is, you know, God will give us discretion. God will give us those opportunities to be that refreshment to others and let God lead us in that. But that should be our goal, really, right? For even, even in things where you have to say to someone that are difficult, those are things that eventually will bring refreshment to their life. So if the worship team would like to come up, we can uh, finish out with that and I'll And I'll pray. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot this morning about God's spirit and about how God gave his only son that we would have eternal life. And I said, I know most of you in here. I don't know everybody, but um, I'm going to give you a chance, if you don't know him, to come to him this morning um, and become part of his family. So, Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for all the good things that you do for us. And Lord, if there's anybody here who has been fighting the wind, who has not given their life to you, but that wants to enter into a new life with you and enter into your kingdom and inherit eternal life, I pray you would just speak to their heart right now and invite them And that they would accept your invitation, Lord. So while our heads are bowed, if there's anybody that would want to go with the wind this morning. And come into your presence. And come into your family. And put their former life behind. I pray you would raise your hand. Is there anybody here this morning? I'll give you just a minute. Awesome. Awesome. Well, there's going to be some people up here to pray with you. Come up here after the service. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you had the courage and the love to lay down your life for our sake.